I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. This is a story about how the natural world lets us know that something is wrong. Whether or not we choose to pay attention to it, of course, is a very different question. The story begins in British Columbia with a pretty rare type of fish. Along the way, it raises questions that are best answered by a close examination of our mining practices. And the story ends, well, it hasn't yet, but it ends up miles and miles away, across the United States border in Montana, where officials started wondering what the hell we're doing up in the mountains across the border. This sounds so cliche to say, especially during a week about the environment. But of course, we are all connected. It still seems like it takes us a lot longer than it should, though, to realize that problems with a little fish will eventually cause problems with our own drinking water and with our own neighbors. So maybe we should do something about that before it's too late. It is the kind of lesson that you'd think we'd have learned by now, right? I mean, you would think, and yet, here we are. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story, and this is part four of our special five-part series with the Narwhal. We are joined by Carol Linnett, who is a journalist there and also the managing editor of the Narwhal. Hello, Carol. Hi, Jordan. Why don't you start your story, um, which is is fascinating and also a little scary, by uh, telling me a little bit about the West Slope cutthroat trout. Sure thing. So the West Slope cutthroat trout are a, a very beautiful fish. They have um, pink cheeks and adorable little spots, and they're affectionately known in, in certain areas in British Columbia as cutties. People flock to this valley in southeastern British Columbia um, to a little town called Fernie um, in search of these adorable cutties. They're, they're, I've been told that they are the perfect fish for fly fishers. It's like they sit under the water and they're just waiting to um, gobble up a fly. But what's been happening in Fernie over the last um, couple of years has been pretty distressing for not just fly fishermen, but for locals who, who live there and for conservation organizations, which is that increasingly um, fish are being pulled out of the water with some distressing deformities. Like what kind of deformities? What physical changes have locals seen in them? So some of the things that people are seeing are deformed jaws. So the jaws, you know, the bottom jaw will be jutting out far to the left and not connect to the top jaw at all. Um, another thing they're seeing are deformed spines. So really intense curvature of the spine, which obviously for a fish would make it quite hard to swim. Um, probably the worst one, I think, in my mind is missing gill plates. So fish on on the sides of their sort of cheek area have these um, these soft, fleshy covers that cover their gills. And the gills are like, if you could imagine... Um, 
really uh, imagine your, your fingers had no skin on them, just really fleshy little fingers. This is critical to, to fish essentially being able to breathe in water. And they're actually missing the plates that cover these very um, sensitive and fragile gills. So they're, they're kind of swimming in the water with their gills completely exposed. What's, what's causing this? So the the issue in the, the waterways in this area, sort of uh, the watershed is known as the Elk Valley watershed. And what's been happening over the last um, few decades is a dramatic increase in levels of selenium. So selenium is, is you know, a naturally occurring element. It's it's essential for a healthy life for humans and, and for animals. But it's um, I've been told by, by a scientist who researches um, selenium and its impacts in, in ecosystems that it's considered biphasic, which means it's an element that can go from good to you to, to very bad for you in a very short amount of time. So even subtle increases in selenium can, can be very um, distressing, especially to small critters and creatures that live in these watersheds like um, little invertebrates and mayflies and birds and fish. The increase in selenium in this watershed is due very undeniably to one thing and one thing only, which is the massive increase in coal mining. What kind of mining are we talking about? And, you know, how far away is it being done? Uh, what's going on up there? So the coal mines in, in the Elk Valley are, they're, they're quite an impressive thing in and of themselves. Imagine you have kind of the the uh, the quintessential vision of like the Canadian Rockies. This is a, an area of land that's kind of, you know, right up against the border between BC and Alberta um, and just above the border of BC and Montana. So you have this like these really impressive, you know, towering mountain mountainous landscapes. Um, and these coal mines are sort of situated up in these mountains. And it's a particular kind of mining that has really taken off in the 90s, which has led to the selenium problem. Mining has been happening in this region for about 100 years, but it was really with the takeoff of mountaintop uh, removal mining that you saw the, the, the problem with selenium. So these mines, if you can imagine them, there there are five there, um, and they're all owned by a company called Tech Resources. And if you're to kind of look at this area on Google Maps, um, even before really scrolling in, if you're just looking at like kind of that broad, you know, high airplane view, um, you would be able to sort of see them visibly on the landscape. They're absolutely enormous. Some of the biggest mines in in the province are here, and they sort of stretch along this um, contiguous region of of mountaintops for about a hundred kilometers. And as you know, kind of your classic vision of mountaintop removal mining, these are, these are huge mountain, um, uh, huge mountain peaks that are being sort of leveled tier by tier. So they almost look like these huge, gigantic uh, staircases are being sort of carved into the side of these mountains. Um, and as a result of that, uh, you know, you're removing a lot of this rock and that rock, um, whatever is, you know, high value coal is, is being taken and moved away for processing. And the rest is just waste rock. And that waste rock gets kind of dumped into these huge piles. And those piles just sit there exposed. They're almost nearly as big as mountains themselves. They're, they're quite enormous. And they just kind of sit there exposed to the elements, to the snow and the wind and the rain um, all year long for decades. And this is the root of the selenium problem is that water flows through these waste rock piles and moves through lit little tributaries and, and little uh, rivers and, and kind of makes its way um, from the creeks into the main water stem. Every single little bit of that water is pulling a little bit more of selenium along with it into the major waterways. 
You said uh, a few minutes ago that w- it was pretty undeniable that the mining is what's causing the selenium to enter the water. And uh, uh, my first question, I guess, is, is that confirmed uh, by tech itself and it's not in dispute? And if so, what kind of regulations uh, govern how much uh, selenium they can pour into waterways? So, so that's a really interesting question. Um, to the first part of it, you know, is it contested at all, like where the selenium is coming from? No, that's that's not a contested fact. Um, tech resources, the company itself has acknowledged that they have some major troubles with water quality and they're, they're working very hard to deal with the selenium problem. It's not a contested fact by the province and, and it's a, it's an issue of real concern for, um, the state of Montana. Just last month, Montana actually released a report saying that in the waterway that crosses the BC Montana border, that 95% of the selenium entering into that waterway is coming directly from the Elk River, which is um, where all this water from these waste piles around these mines is, is flowing into. So uh, it's not it's not unknown by any stretch of the imagination that this is a huge problem. In fact, if you kind of rewind all the way back to the 90s, um, it was already beginning to be recognized then that there was a major problem with selenium. Um, selenium science itself was was developing you know between the 90s and the early 2000s um, because of other mines in other places across the US um, there were there was a very famous photo of a two-headed trout that made its way into the New York Times um, and this was the result of selenium pollution from a mine down in in the states so this was really concerning for everyone who was watching this issue with these mines um, and these uh, you know these increasing selenium levels in British Columbia to so the question of regulations, the federal government started looking closely at this. Um, you know, it's always interesting when there's kind of a division in who is responsible for what in terms of jurisdictions between, say, the province and the federal government. Well, the province is responsible for the the mining of resources and pollution coming from mines. The federal government in the province, the federal government is responsible for protecting fish on behalf of all Canadians. So according to the Fisheries Act, no one uh, gets to pollute fish bearing waters, um, at least not willy nilly. You know, there's going to be uh, very strict regulations. But this is a really interesting thing that I think most Canadians will be quite surprised to hear. There are actually no pollution effluent regulations for coal mines in Canada. So essentially, if you want to permit a mine to mine for copper in British Columbia, um, there are regulations at the federal level that will say, okay, well, you can't release, you know, XYZ um, contaminants into any fish bearing waterways, which essentially, you know, are almost all waterways uh, Mm -hmm. are, are, are fish bearing in one way or another. And so there's very strict permit requirements and regulations that will be put into effect. So, I mean, if you're running a copper mine, you might be allowed to uh, discharge, you know, a little bit of this, you know, kind of pollutant. Um, But it's going to be very specifically monitored and monitored against limits and levels that are actually written down in existing regulations. Those same existing limits and, and rules and regulations don't actually exist for coal mines in Canada. And it's not just coal mines, it's actually all non-metal mines. Any mine that isn't mining for metals or diamonds actually does not have these strict regulations. It's a it's kind of a, a, a big little scandal. That seems like a pretty huge loophole. <laughs> it, it's an enormous loophole and it's, it's really created some interesting and uh, rather awkward problems. And the Elk Valley is, is certainly... Um, is certainly one of these. And so 
the federal government isn't the only body that regulates pollution. Of course, you know, in British Columbia, if we've got the provinces responsible for permitting mines and monitoring pollution, um, some of those regulations are actually coming down to the, the provincial level as well. Um, and it, it gets a little bit awkward there, too. Uh, the province of B.C. has... Um, you know, been very hesitant to put specific pollution limits on these mines. And in place of very strict rules and regulations that say, you know, you cannot pollute beyond this level. If you pollute beyond this level, we're going to take away your permits until you can fix that problem. BC has been very mm-hmm. hesitant to take that approach. What they've done instead is they've said, let's come up with a plan, you know, like a, they like to call it an adaptive management plan, you know, because, who knows, you know, what the future holds and we might run into these problems, but, you know, through collaboration and, and, and monitoring together, we, we can, we can get there and it's very loosey goosey. And basically you don't have a, a, a sort of very strict limit right? by design. Exactly. Um, and what this has, uh, what this looks like for these mines in, in the Elk Valley. And, and these are not just, you know, it's not a matter of like, these are just some mines, like if they're really bad at polluting, why can't we just shut them down? These are huge mines that would have massive economic um, consequences for the communities that live there. There are thousands of people that are employed by these mines. So so the province, you know, it does have a strong um, desire to work with this company to get this problem under wraps. And so basically in this plan, they've come up with um, uh, working in consultation with, you know, scientists and local communities and, and the company um, is that they need to stabilize selenium pollution levels by... 2023, they actually have to start dropping down those pollution levels by 2030, which, you know, in the in the time when this plan was being developed um, several years ago, that seemed like uh, something that could be brought, you know, that seemed like an achievable target. But now we're just a mere three years away from that goal of stabilizing selenium levels and what we've seen year after year. And decade after decade is a slow, steady uptick in selenium in the watershed. And the company has spent hundreds of millions of dollars investing in these water treatment plants. And none of them thus far have proven to be ultimately successful at taking selenium out of the water. It's a, it's a real conundrum. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. We started this by talking about fish um, and putting putting the trout aside for a minute, not lightly. Um, what other problems come from selenium in the water, especially for humans? So this this is an issue of ongoing concern as well. Um, when I went to the Elk Valley in 2018, I, I had been hearing rumors before heading up there um, to do some reporting that... Uh, the, the problem of selenium pollution was no longer one of just, you know, the rivers and the fish. It had really crept its way and made its way into the, the larger water system um, from which everyone drinks. And sure enough, um, 
that we visited uh, the town of Sparwood and some of these municipal water systems had actually been taken completely offline um, and people were having water delivered to their homes for, for drinking. So as I mentioned before, BC doesn't have, you know, that strict limit in place that like really defines, um, you know, how much selenium can be put into the water. What we do have instead are sort of BC's water quality guidelines. Once again, these are sort of soft. They're not law, so they're not enforceable as law. But according to those guidelines, um, to keep water safe for human consumption, selenium levels need to be kept down to 10 parts per billion. To keep aquatic life safe, so the fish, it needs to be down to two parts per billion. Fish are, they live in the water, obviously. <laughs> Haven't met a fish who doesn't live in the water yet. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're incredibly sensitive to this type of pollution and the way that it, it uh, causes deformities and, and birth defects. Another issue, you know, with the fish is people are saying, sure, we're pulling fish out of the water that are have these really troubling deformities. But what about the fish that uh, that we're not seeing at all? And this has been a, a major ongoing concern, too, is the potential for for a fish population collapse. So uh, in the last couple of years, in addition to um, seeing water systems actually being taken completely offline because the selenium levels are just too high, it's not safe. Um, this is happening in municipal systems and also in some of the local ranches and private properties. You're seeing water wells that are hitting those upper limits of what's considered safe. Um, another thing that tech has actually had to report on um, recently is a, a fish population collapse of some of these um, of these cutties, uh, these cutty populations. There's actually one population of this trout that lives above a waterfall and everyone um, talks about how they're they're genetically distinct they're a very unique population of of west slope cutthroat trout and that population this is this is in a, a little um, river that is beneath tech's biggest mine in the area that population suffered a 93% collapse. So th this is really interesting because as this problem with selenium was sort of gaining some traction and the federal government started to kind of take a look at this, they actually hired an expert, um, the same expert who took a look at that two-headed trout situation in the States. Um, he actually wrote a report in 2014 for Canada on this exact issue. And he was very, very specific in his warning about what would happen if selenium levels were not got brought under control. And he actually said, this will lead to a collapse of populations of sensitive species like the West Slope cutthroat trout. And it's, it's so harrowing now, um, just a mere six years later, to actually start to see that happening um, in these fish populations, in these waterways that are directly downstream of these mines. So the fish are uh, showing up deformed. Some of them are vanishing. Uh, local water is unfit to drink in some places. Why isn't this a bigger deal? Why aren't more people talking about this? It seems like it should be a massive scandal. I agree with you. It's such a big story. It has, um, every time I, I find myself talking about it, people are kind of like, wow, this is like such an Aaron Brockovich kind of story. And it has elements, you know, the story has a, a lot of those features to it. You know, in some ways, this is, it's, it's a really slow moving catastrophe. This problem with selenium, it's just been inching up, inching up uh, over decades. And, and it's very hard to, you know, kind of uh, command people's undivided attention for decades. And we, this is a problem with a lot of, you know, big environmental stories. And, and as environmental journalists, you want to, you want to 
find a way to, to capture and tell these stories in a way that, that really does justice to the urgency and the stakes. Um, so I think a part of it is, is it's just like such a, a long-term, slow-moving catastrophe. Um, I, I do think that another part of the challenge with this issue is that it, you know, the story really devolves quite quickly into uh, sort of regulatory um, mm-hmm. jargon. Exactly. And, uh, and we're talking about, you know, the, the water quality plan and monitoring and parts per billion. And you can sort of feel people's eyes glazing over just at the thought of it. Sure. But what about the people who who live there? Why aren't they raising the alarm? Why aren't they talking about it? I mean, their their water is no longer fit to drink. So this is a major, major part of this issue, too. A lot of the people who are immediately impacted by this issue as an environmental issue um, and, a, and a potential health concern, these are these people also work at these mines and they are reliant mm. on these mines for their income and their dads worked at the mines and their moms work at the mine and um, they plan on working at the mine. You know, there's people up in this area that they don't even bother finishing high school because they know exactly where they're going to work. They know that it's, it's confirmed and, and tech has done a lot of work to demonstrate its commitment to the community and its desire to, to work on a solution. Um, the company, you know, everything is branded with tech when you're up there. You know, um, if you see kids playing soccer on a soccer field, they're all wearing jerseys that have the tech logo on it. Um, tech is really, really involved in the community. And and to the extent that the company can be, it has leveraged enormous political capital as well. Um, it, it's, it seems like, you know, a piece of history already, the fact that for a long time, BC was a, an outlier in all of Canada because it didn't limit political contributions from corporations in uh, to political parties. It was just a few years ago um, that that was, uh, you know, sort of outlawed. Prior to that, Tech Resources was the number one donor to the BC Liberal Party in the province. And the BC Liberal Party was in power for for 16 straight years. Um, And those are 16 straight years in which these mines were getting new permits, they were growing, and they were increasing. Um, So there was maybe not a lot of incentive um, on a political level for the province to to really sort of uh, put limitations on this company and and the way that it operates. So I think that's another part of the challenge too, is that this company is enormously influential, not just there um, with, with the people who live and work at these mines um, who are hesitant. Certainly I experienced this reporting from on the ground there. You know, I, I I resorted to door knocking because I couldn't get anyone to to talk to me. I was trying to set up interviews. I was trying to gain access to people. um, And no one wanted to speak about this issue. So I ended up going to Sparwood, a community where, you know, the vast majority of people work for the mine in in one fashion or another. And uh, I I just knocked on people's doors asking if they'd speak to me. And um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I was just striking out. No one wanted to talk about this. And some people said straight up, like, I can't talk to you about this. Like, I will get in trouble. So what happens uh, going forward then if um, not much changes? Are we hoping that tech can bring this under control? Is anybody uh, planning to regulate them more strongly? The uh, BCNDP, perhaps? Uh, You know, what are the next steps here? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts uh, right now that will sort of determine the the fate and the outcome of of this issue and, and these mines and this watershed. Um, one of the things that is is a huge, uh, I think, a high pressure piece um, is that 
since 2015, BC and Montana. So this pollution is, is, you know, as much as it's a slow moving um, crisis for the Elk Valley, all of this water drains directly into the the Kukanusa Reservoir, which crosses the border of BC and Montana. And we're starting to hear more and more and more from uh, politicians, conservation groups, fly fishers, and just locals in Montana who are pretty upset that selenium levels are now getting higher and higher in their waterway because of this problem. So in, since 2015, BC and Montana have been saying, okay, we are going to get um, a system in place. We're going to decide on a shared aligned limit for selenium in the Kukanusa Reservoir, in that body of water that, that crosses the border. And the deadline that they agreed to for that was the end of 2020. Um, and so just mm. recently, Montana, you know, came out and they said, okay, we, we're going to say out loud, like, what our limit is. It's... 0.8 parts per billion and measurements have already been taken that have um, have that uh, waterway showing levels as high as 0.6 parts per billion. So it's like very, very close to this limit already. And BC has basically declined to to say what their proposed uh, you know limit is going to be. The other thing that is a major pressure point is that tech has proposed um, a whole new mine. Um, they, they don't consider it a whole new mine because it's, uh, it's beside an existing mine. So they're calling it a mine expansion. This, this is an issue that, um, is contentious in and of itself because a lot of onlookers say this, they the company is clearly intentionally designating this new mine as an expansion because the requirements for triggering certain environmental assessments, uh, changed, whether it's, you know, just an expansion of an existing mine or a whole new mine. Um, but just very recently, the federal government said, whether it's a new mine or an expansion, we're going to do a federal environmental assessment of, you know, looking at this issue, uh, uh, looking at this proposed mine expansion. And if the federal government is doing a full environmental review of this new mine, they're going to have to take into account these selenium problems. And that's going to shine a spotlight on on this problem and how the the growth of mines is um, is adding to to this issue as well. And in addition to this uh, tech uh, new tech mine, um, there are three other companies who are angling to get mines in here too. So there's actually three separate coal proposals from three mm. separate companies that are also um, looking to get in on the coal action in in the, in the Elk Valley. Well, until uh, the government shines a light on it, thank you for helping us shine a light on it. It's it's my pleasure, and we've got uh, ample reporting on on this subject. So, for anyone who's curious, please please check out the Narwhal. We've got quite a lot on the subject. Carol Linnett is the managing editor of the Narwhal, and you can find the Narwhal at thenarwhal.ca. That's t h e n a r w h a l dot c a. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. I am not going to spell that for you. You can figure it out. You can also find us at the Big Story FPN on Twitter, and you can find us in your favorite podcast player. I don't care which one you use, but if it lets you review us, you better do it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. 
These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.